I don't know if you feel this. I, it's a bit different maybe in, in how I observe Christmas now than it used to be, but I used to really want to feel Christmassy at least once during the season. And, and I would look back and I would think, or at the time, like I'd be at Christmas presents or something, the Pacific Theater production or somewhere else or in church, and something would happen. And be, oh, there it is. I feel really, really Christmassy right now. And so I could feel like, there, I, I, I celebrated Christmas. Maybe during O Holy Night or something like that. But I became mindful as well that one of the things I needed to do, I don't know if this is for you, but I needed to kind of go before the manger, you know, imaginatively, however you want to think of it. I needed to go before the manger and just humble myself there and just kind of ask the question, Heavenly Father, what are you doing? And it was a, it's a, something that takes you apart from all the responsibilities you have, all the things you have to do to get ready for me in terms of all the stuff you have to do as a pastor. And all those kind of labels and roles, they kind of move away. And so I'm inviting you to do that this morning. I can speak and share in the next little bit what we're going to be thinking about during the sermon time. But really what I'm longing for you to do is put yourself before that manger and ask, Heavenly Father, what are you doing? And in some ways you can also ask, does any of this matter? What's happening? Joseph and Mary, it's not outside of kind of regular thinking to consider that their lives did not go as planned. Um, you like to think about your life in that regard, they have a better story than yours. Their lives really didn't go as planned. And so you can think of kids' productions. Sometimes kids' productions have little Joseph and Mary cast. You think they're so cute. Usually they're fairly wordless, right, Joseph and Mary. Other people say things, and they kind of sit there staring at the baby or something. And, but these are actual people who went through this experience And it wasn't as they planned at all. You have to ask yourself, what was the reality of their lives before the angelic visits? And what was it that they were hoping would happen? What was the best they could hope for out of life? Joseph, we're told, was righteous. When I think of what they were hoping for out of their lives, I also can then reflect back. So you think of what actually happened. Then you can put this kind of overlay on it. You can say... Did their lives turn out better because of these angelic visits? Or would it maybe have been easier for them if those things hadn't have happened? In other words, God comes, He makes all these promises, incredible things happen, but it doesn't mean that they're separated from pain, sorrow, loss, uncertainty. Joseph, we're told, was righteous. Um, The way I think we'd put it today in more secular terms, Joseph was a good guy. He's a stand-up guy. You could count on Joseph. We'll consider in a few minutes what his righteousness meant. And if he were to map his life out, what would it have looked like? I think he would have tried to consider how can he do his job properly? How can he care for his family as his family grows? And then... Incident one, how things change. 
before Joseph, and kids read it for us, before Joseph is visited by an angel, he finds out, they find out, that Mary is pregnant. Now you tend to think that back in those days, it's like, oh, she was pregnant, that must be God. No, that's not what they thought. They knew how women get pregnant. And Joseph finds out that Mary is pregnant, so what would he think? He knows it wasn't his child. Not in that way. Not how these things happen. So what would Joseph do? Scripture tells us, as Jessica read for us, that Joseph's righteousness is demonstrated in something extraordinary. His righteousness is demonstrated in that he determined to protect Mary from shame. We could learn a lot about that in the Christian community and in church. That our call is not to point out the sin of other people but in fact to protect them from shame. We haven't always spoken that way to one another, but of course it doesn't take a lot to realize why this is a reflection of righteousness because you go to the cross and you realize this is the fulfillment of what Jesus Christ has done for us. That it isn't shame, that it's love. Righteousness is found in this self-sacrifice. Uh, A little bit of history. In history, uh, the story is read kind of different ways by different Christians, like interpreted differently. So Protestants have kind of emphasized that Joseph is sad. I think they said sad in the reading. Um, Or maybe even a bit upset or angry is kind of the idea. It's not really there scripturally. It's kind of interpreted. Catholics have interpreted often that Joseph is afraid of Mary. In other words, especially after the angel comes and says, do not be afraid to take her as your wife. They're unmarried, remember. And he's a little bit afraid in this interpretation that, "Uh uh-oh, God's with her. That's a little bit troubling if you're about to marry someone and they have this special connection to God. The one thing we do know is that it's not like was planned. Joseph is reeling. And then incident two the angelic visit that we have mentioned. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Joseph would have been shaking his head at this whole thing. First of all, that Mary was pregnant. And secondly, that in a theophany, an appearance of God, God would seem to sanction this apparent scandal. It's an astounding way that God brings Jesus Christ into history. And this alone should explode any moralism that has been so prevalent in the church and in all many religions. But certainly for us as Christians, this should explode our moralism that Jesus comes to us in this way. Joseph is now carrying at least two unexpected burdens, how his life didn't turn out as he thought. He's carrying the shame and judgment because what would people say about Joseph and Mary now that Mary's pregnant? They're sinners, Right? And the angel said, don't be afraid to take her as your wife. This is not historically how many religious people have responded in circumstances like this. We could learn from it. He's carrying the shame and the judgment, and he's willing to carry that. But now he also, and many of you would think about this in your own lives, men and women both, carrying the responsibility, how am I going to care for this child? What are we going to do? Let Joseph be human 
not just cute. Think of his thoughts and concerns and fears. You're good at thinking of your own. Just translate it a little bit. God is with Joseph. If you have the assurance that God is with you, then you might assume that from there, everything is going to be okay. An angel comes, says, do not fear. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Makes promises about the child. Right? You'd think, this is all going to work out. And then you go to try to find a hotel room. It's an astounding story for this. God doesn't prepare a better place than an animal stable and a feeding trough? I'm interested in, and I know I kind of harp on it a little bit, but it's because it's a bit of a problem in our city right now and in various parts of the world. It's in Australia too, this, this thing. And that is a perversion of the gospel called the prosperity gospel that says if you live a proper life and you have enough faith, then God will give you uh, wealth and health. If you read the Christmas story, can you not throw that perversion of the gospel out right away? It's, they say things like this, you're a child of the living God. And he does his best for his children. What would Joseph have thought? Jesus Christ is the Son of God, born into a feeding trough. This prosperity gospel is not the only perversion that is refuted by this story. The other one that has been so prevalent, and many of you might be more familiar with this, is the gospel of moralism. The idea that God is more interested in your sin than anything else in your life. What you've done wrong. Moralism is negated in this story as well because as we've mentioned, God allows Jesus to be born into an apparent scandal. When the Holy Spirit brings Jesus into history, much that good people think is proper is contradicted. What are you going to do with that? Why was he born this way? And how come we still haven't learned this lesson? A theological interlude. This is when you say, bring the cute children back. I didn't come to church to hear theology. Uh, it's interesting because I, one of the things I reflect on when I sometimes speak or hear sermons or read, uh, you guys, this makes sense. You're often more interested in anthropology than theology. And you're saying to me, no, I don't care about either. But you do because anthropology means that the minister gets up and tells you what you should do. You know, talks about you, your life. That's anthropology, people. And many sermons are anthropology. Uh, theology is talk about God. Sometimes harder to understand. So a little theological interlude. It's making it really basic. In the early 1900s, in Western Christianity in Europe, many of you would know this as you would think. You could think 30s and on or even before that. There's a problem. If you've traveled through Europe, you, go, you notice everywhere what? Empty churches. So the church had been losing its significance and losing its cultural kind of authority. And so, again, this is making it basic, but the church generally, and all kinds of denominations and different things, but there was this impulse to say, what can be our point of contact with the world? All these people are leaving church. How can we connect with them? 
And what do you think was chosen? I'll tell you that this, what was chosen, has completely dominated how you think of God. I know there were, there's more to it. I'm going to put one word on the screen in a moment. Um, and so don't go, it's not just that, I understand. But this was a big part of it. This is what was chosen. Guilt. Not Elf on a Shelf and Santa, we'll get to that. But guilt was chosen. Not even in, in entirely negative ways. But what happened was, how can we connect with people? Well, one thing we know, and this came from their the- theological heritage, we know that people do bad things. And hopefully, when they do bad things, they feel some kind of stirring. So we can connect with them and emphasize that God forgives or God judges or whatever it might be, right? Depending on kind of how you see this, you might have faced one more than the other. And for a while, this worked and worked fairly well. But some of you are still dominated by it, and I would argue that it doesn't really work and it has a detrimental effect. Some of you make determinations about others based on good and bad and right and wrong. When you're growing up, you might think if you struggle with this, is a, not struggled, but if you thought about this as a young person growing up, is that a good person or a bad person? The reason we think in those kinds of ways, in some ways in our cultural history, is that this is what was chosen. You think that how God views you is based on your choices. That's because of this frame. Everything fit into this frame. And as I said, it had for its time, and we're still living in the shadow of it, some kind of positive effect. But the worst examples of it are Santa Claus and Elf on a Shelf. Elf on a Shelf, you know about Elf on a Shelf? That's the elf that watches you. I know there's probably more to it, I'm just making it, but, you know, watches you and reports to Santa how terrible you are, how great you are. Right? Right? Santa Claus, that wonderful song, you'd better watch out. He sees you when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. And then what? He knows if you've been bad or good. So we took, in some ways, the worst things of a perverted theology about God, and we put them onto a more secular character that sought to control the behavior of kids with some similar techniques. The problem with this is that I'm not saying sin isn't real. I'm not saying we don't do bad things. But if you use this as a frame, guilt and good and bad and right and wrong, you affect... So if I do that right now, think about that. Judgment, good, bad, right, wrong. He sees you when you're sleeping. You'd better watch out. He knows if you've been bad or good. Think about all those things, right? Hold them in your head. Now think about God. Now what does God appear like? Someone who's basically doing this to the world. And so, within your families... In your own life, as you think about people inside and out the church, outside the church, you fall into this pattern of this affecting you. If you look at the manger, you hear the, the declarations of the angels. What I'm telling you is something so much better than that is happening. For God so loved the world that he sent his son He did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. I'm convinced, we've been doing this vision and direction thing, I'm convinced that we need some theological adaptation as a church 
if we're, as we move ahead into the years and decades ahead. And this is one of them. This has served us well to some degree. But we need a much, much better way to speak about faith. God knows you better than you know yourself. And he loves you. Are you afraid that we're not going to talk about sin if we do that? Trust me, we'll get there. But it's a different frame. I went to a minister's retreat um, not too long ago. I may have told you this before. But these are like a bunch of senior ministers, like 15 senior ministers sitting in a circle. Everybody's dream. Anyway, and Ken Bell was leading it, and he led us through. Can you tell us the first time that you were aware of God's presence? And tell us another time where you felt God was absent. And so we went around the circle, and this, these are ministers from our own community. And what was interesting to me was how many, the majority, talked about that in their early Christian life, it seemed, that one of them actually said, it seemed that God was more interested in my sin than anything else. And it's taken me a long time to try to find healing over that. These are senior ministers. Put yourself before the manger and ask God, what are you doing? And hear how in the Holy Spirit he speaks to you. I am convinced that this story does away with this false prosperity idea and with a false moralism, the concept that God is most interested, that God considers us based on our choices. The manger and the cross should show us that God considers us based on his love. And the manger is a lens towards the cross. So as much as Mary and Joseph didn't expect this, this isn't what we expected either. The cross becomes a stumbling block, we're told in Scripture, an embarrassment. It's foolishness to people who don't see this. But the birth of Jesus Christ in this way is a lens and a love beyond our imagining. That frame of guilt has done great damage to a proper view of God. In fact, there's some theologians at the time, and they were mostly not ignored, but the Western church went another way. But many of these theologians are being revisited, and those who were students. Some theologians at the time, when this kind of frame was chosen, said, If you choose this frame, even though there are right things about it, we do sin, we do need forgiveness. If you choose this frame to present the gospel, you will distort people's view of God so much that it won't be worth it. I consider that. The cross. Jesus Christ born in this feeding trough. I think they said smelly place in the presentation. You need better words than smelly, but you can't say them in church, but they're the true ones. That's where he was born. To this unmarried couple, experiencing the judgment of all of those religious people who knew the way things were supposed to happen. And he saved the world. What's going on? 
Last Sunday night, she was standing right here. This room was filled with the tables. Those who were here for the dessert evening know it was beautiful. It was a great evening. Um, and I've asked her permission if I could mention her name and her circumstance. And Wendy Love, who is part of St. Timothy's that meets here before us in the mornings, she sang O Holy Night. Some of you might remember that. A beautiful singer, powerful voice, kind of like opera singing the way she sang, sang it, if you remember. But I noticed a couple times where she was caught and it wasn't perfect. I also know what Wendy's going through. We had spoken before the service and I knew this, but I hadn't like kind of gone up and asked her how she's doing. Wendy was recently diagnosed with cancer. And so before the service last Sunday morning, we were speaking. I asked her how she was doing. She told me she was afraid. She told me that she's going for surgery on December 23rd. And as she was singing, and I was sitting fairly close at the table we were at, I felt the Holy Spirit come down in my thoughts. And I could hear the words, Oh, holy night. I just, it's mine and so many people's favorite Christmas songs, so that's okay, we can share it. So I just loved the song at first, and then I felt the Spirit speaking to me and giving me like images, visions. And the visions were of Wendy on the 23rd, whatever it is, however this happens, lying down, being pushed into the places where she has to go. And as she was singing, those kept coming. It wasn't hopeless. I heard her sing, led by the light of faith serenely beaming. And I heard a crack in her voice, knowing, and I've heard since actually, that she was thinking some of those same things. He knows our need, our weakness, no stranger. I can't convince you of who Jesus Christ is. We've packaged stuff up so much and used this sin, fear, guilt idea so much. I can invite you to humble yourself before the manger and trust the Holy Spirit of God to reveal to you that this is the Savior of the world. He will save his people from their sins. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Something extraordinary has happened. And we have this treasure in these earthen vessels. What have we done in trying to convince at times the world how bad and wrong they are? He knows your need, your weakness is no stranger. Let me pray. And before I do, just take a minute for you to prayerfully and imaginatively bring yourself to that place. Come Holy Spirit. I don't know, Heavenly Father, I feel like I'm just discovering again the depth of your love. 
And I thank you for those who have come before and who were instrumental in my life and pointing me towards you. I thank you even at times when we were caught within a particular way of understanding that had its benefits but came also with great cost. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us. Reveal our Lord Jesus Christ to us, Holy Spirit, by your power and presence. Help us to know that the love of our Heavenly Father is not dependent even upon our choices and that that love defeats even our sin. Forgive us. We pray for Wendy. I can't imagine, Lord, many can here through their own experience or that of family. I can't imagine what it would be like to be in that circumstance. One day, perhaps, I will be able to. But whether it's in that not the way it's supposed to be for her, or however it is for us, we ask that you would humble us before this blessed gift. Emmanuel, God with us. Come Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.